very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I'm Sean Richards, hosting today due to a lack of better options, and joined by Pastor Scott Richards. <laughs> no, you're a great option. <laughs> I am the option that you're chosen. Yes. But, uh, no, if you Not only a great option, but the only option. Let <laughs> other men speak well of you. Um, but if you want to send us your Bible questions, note that is the purpose for which we're setting ourselves aside for the next hour. So feel free to do so at any of our decided venues. Um, first of all, questionsforhope at gmail.com is where you can email us. The address, again, through email is questions. The questions is plural, forhope at gmail.com. There, if you send us your questions before, during, or even after the broadcast, we'll be able to keep them all organized in case we need to revisit them at a later date. If you'd like to join us through social media, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. If you join us there, you'll be able to engage with us live face-to-face -face, and, of course, able to interact with us through our chat function as well as in the comment sections of later broadcasts. You subscribe to us there and hit the bell. You'll also be notified of our bi-weekly Bible studies, of which at the moment we are going through Acts and Esther. That's right. Also note, if you prefer something other than YouTube, Facebook has the same options. You can leave your comments to us at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash Tucson, and T-U-C-S-O-N is, of course, how you would spell that. Not uh, something we want to take for granted here in the south, or I guess uh, southwestern uh, United States, but something that... <laughs> it's we, like people who can pronounce Saguaro. Or Arkansas <laughs> versus Arkansas, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But nonetheless, that is how you can get a hold of us if Facebook is your preferred method. You can message us privately through Messenger on our page, and of course get the same notifications you'll get through YouTube. Say you want to avoid social media, our website also has a built-in live streaming app. You hit the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to where you can engage with us, leave your comments as the broadcast unfolds, and of course engage with us there the same way. Note, if you would prefer anonymity, the website does give you the chance to fill in your own name, so you can type in anonymous, or if you'd prefer to email us, we can engage with all of that as well. But with all of that said, and before we get into the topics of the day, we want to make sure God speaks more than we do, as we make the habit of saying. So why don't we start off with a word of prayer and see where it goes? Let's do that. Father, we invite uh, your uh, involvement in this broadcast now. Lord, we thank you that it is your word. These are your people who are tuning in, and it is your desire to draw them closer to you, to have a better informed uh, more practical and more personal relationship with you than they've ever had before. And so, Lord, we pray that as your word goes forth, it would accomplish these things and a whole lot more. Prepare our hearts for this, Lord. Let us just take a deep breath and uh, remember that uh, praying that simple prayer that Samuel was taught to pray, speak, Lord, for your servant hears, can make all the difference in the world in our personal Bible study and even in uh, tuning into a broadcast like this. So we look forward to in, in encountering that personal relationship that you give us with you. And uh, we pray that you would give us that servant's heart, to, uh, not just to hear, but to put these things into practice. You say that that is a, a more uh, wonderful sacrifice than, than anything that we can bring to you. So Lord, uh, touch our hearts, change our lives, 
Lord, we pray even for those that uh, might be on the outside looking in at a relationship with you uh, and uh, that you would draw them into uh, your forever family as uh, your broadcast uh, unfolds and as uh, your gospel, your good news that you'll save anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his invitation that uh, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right, well, starting off the week, we want to keep our eye on the East. What's up with Israel? Uh, yeah, well, uh, quite a few things happening over the weekend. We'll uh, try to keep it as uh, condensed as possible so that we have as much time as we can to answer your questions here on the broadcast. Uh, a few of the uh, more interesting developments that have been happening, as many of you know, uh, the, the conflict between uh, Hamas, uh, the terrorists in Gaza, who launched an unprovoked attack on Israel on October 7th, uh, butchering and massacring innocent citizens during that time hasn't uh, really uh, played out well for them. Uh, the IDF has invaded and continues uh, their operations in Gaza. But we've also seen that uh, this conflict has spread regionally. Uh, if you were with us on Friday, there, were, there was uh, quite a bit of talk about the United States going to war uh, with Iran. Uh, we uh, let you all know that uh, instead of... Um, uh, an act of war. It's kind of an act of gesture that has gone on. Even though three Americans were killed uh, by an Iranian proxy militia group's uh, suicide drone attack uh, on a uh, base in the uh, country of Jordan, uh, our uh, State Department and other sources let slip, uh, leaked, if you will, the uh, pre-approved targets that uh, the United States was going to uh, attack uh, in uh, response to all of this. Uh, Catherine Hedridge and some other uh, uh, reporters uh, indicated that that caused uh, all of the uh, powers that be, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps uh, officers that were uh, part of these uh, approved targets, to beat feet back to the friendly confines of Iran. So uh, definitely not a war going on there. It was more or less we've got to do something, and so they did. Uh, they attacked uh, some of these militia positions, but uh, no one really of consequence was taken out in all of that. Uh, the regionalness of this war has spread, obviously, beyond just involving Jordan, Syria, Iraq, uh, Iran, uh, Lebanon, uh, Israel, and uh, Gaza. Uh, there's been quite a bit of, uh, of discussion about the attacks of the Houthi uh, rebels uh, who uh, use uh, the country of Yemen as a staging base for uh, missile attacks and acts of piracy on uh, ships that have to cross through the very narrow gulf between the Horn of Africa and southwestern uh, Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula there. Uh, the Houthis uh, have been attacked again uh, by uh, the United States and by Great Britain, but they seem to be upping the ante. Uh, one of the more interesting uh, developments that has happened is that the Houthis are now threatening to cut the fiber optic cable that runs along the bottom of the Red Sea if the U.S. and Britain hit the Yemeni airports again. Uh, this cable uh, uh, connects Europe, Africa, and the Middle East as far 
as uh, as uh, the uh, internet and uh, different uh, avenues of communication. And if it is damaged, according to experts, it's going to affect geopolitical stability, financial markets, and information security. So the Houthis have, in a sense, uh, upped the ante. Uh, they've said that they're going to go after that cable if these attacks continue. Well, these attacks have continued. It's going to be very interesting to see in this week if the Houthis make an attempt to sever that particular cable. Uh, as far as how things are going in Gaza, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, had a cabinet meeting. He, at that cabinet meeting, he said this, to date, we have destroyed 17 out of 24 Hamas battalions. Most of the remaining battalions are in the south of the Gaza Strip and in Rafah, and we will take care of them as well. Second, cleansing operations are required after the battalions are disbanded, as our forces are doing with determination in very aggressive raids in the north of the Gaza Strip and in its center. Thirdly, the neutralization of the underground tunnels is required as our forces are systematically doing in Khan Yunus and are doing in all parts of the Strip, and this requires more time. We will not end the war before we complete all of its goals, the elimination of Hamas and the return of our abductees, and a promise that Gaza will no longer pose a threat to Israel. Well, I think the only way that that uh, third objective can possibly uh, be uh, accomplished would be for uh, one of two things to happen. Uh, either uh, there is a military solution to all this that is going to re result in uh, the leadership of Hamas uh, willingly going into exile, letting go of power, and uh, all 138 now hostages being released. That would be the only way that uh, this particular uh, conflict, I think, can be resolved. Would it be resolved in this way? Well, the, the big problem is that that statement being made about cleansing is, is being mentioned here. Uh, basically, what they're saying is, is that somehow the population of Gaza has to be transformed from, well, a, uh, a group of people who are absolutely committed to the idea of the extermination of Israel into a group that would be willing to live in peace with Israel. Uh, there was a very interesting uh, conversation uh, that was going on on Israeli television about this, including some cabinet-level members of the Netanyahu administration uh, that said that uh, the only way that uh, this is going to happen is if, uh, in fact, they are able to change the hearts and minds of the people in Gaza. Well, uh, the hearts and minds of the people in Gaza are dominated by a feverish commitment to uh, Islam. And Islam uh, clearly states that uh, there is uh, no place uh, for the Jews to control any of the uh, territory that, uh, that Islam once occupied. Uh, when they say from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free, that's what they're all about. Uh, the only way they're going to give that up is if they have a change of heart. And I firmly believe the only way the Palestinian people will have a change of heart is if they have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus really is the answer in this particular region of the world. And until there is peace in the hearts of men, chances are it's going to be beliefs that are fueling this conflict, and bombs will never stop beliefs. Uh, one of the Netanyahu administration uh, spokespeople uh, said that uh, just because uh, there uh, there would still be people loyal to Nazi Germany 
1944 doesn't mean that we should we should have stopped dropping bombs on them but to remember something the uh, wrap-up of world war ii was not just the uh, disarmament of uh, say the wehrmacht and the luftwaffe and the the ss the various elements of the nazi war machine but the denazification of germany well how did that happen by changing hearts and minds by showing people that nazism was a failed dead end route and offering them something better. I think the same thing is going to happen or needs to happen uh, in Israel. Uh, another interesting development, Israel continues to press southward in Gaza toward uh, the uh, border with Egypt. And Egypt is getting more and more antsy about all of this. In fact, uh, Amir Sarfati on his uh, really wonderful Telegram uh, site, if you haven't uh, uh, downloaded the Telegram app and subscribed to Amir Sarfati, uh, you're missing out on just some great updates here. But one of them that was posted was an Egyptian journalist on government television that made an unusual and harsh statement to the residents of Gaza. If the residents of Gaza try to close the Egyptian border, he said, and enter our country as refugees, they are doomed. They will die after being shot. You can enter our territory, but you will return in death bags. We have no time for your boredom, period. That is a quote. So uh, Egypt has uh, no desire whatsoever to see a bunch of people who are uh, loyal to the Muslim Brotherhood. If uh, you recall, it was the Muslim Brotherhood that uh, temporarily overthrew the government of Egypt. Egypt uh, regained control, and they intend to keep control in no uncertain terms. So, uh, you know, as far as uh, those uh, direct uh, uh, issues uh, involving uh, Israel and the Middle East, we'll keep you posted on any other developments that come up. But uh, another interesting question, I thought uh, maybe we could transition from this into our questions. Uh, we talk about prophecy updates, but uh, one of the questions that we got on our uh, X platform site uh, is a very interesting one. Uh, it had to do uh, with a, a particular prediction uh, that was made uh, earlier today. Uh, this prediction was uh, given to us by a supposed time traveler. Uh, it traded uh, uh, on uh, the uh, X site uh, about a Category 5 and 6 hurricane that would form due to an extreme heat wave from the sun. This would also give rise to an F6 tornado in the year of uh, 2024. Uh, the fascinating thing about these predictions about the uh, category five and six hurricanes forming and creating the, this uh, weather mess was this time traveler from the future who posted this, uh, by the way, on the TikTok website, which I think is the preferred website for time travelers everywhere. Uh, predicted those who would believe it. Uh, predicted uh, this event for ha happening on January 29th. Well, <laughs> if you're keeping the score at home, we're already in February, and it didn't happen. So bad news for time traveling believers. But good news for the Fujita scale. We're yes. Still at five. Yes. Exactly. Uh, interestingly, there were some that jumped on this, including uh, those that uh, were promoting the idea of uh, uh, man-created uh, uh, climate change, saying that we needed to adjust the Fujita scale to include the possibility of an F6 and a Category 6 hurricane, uh, which to me sounded a little bit like the classic uh, scene from uh, the movie This is Spinal Tap, 
where a member of the Spinal Tap uh, rock group showed his amplifier that went to 11. And uh, the interviewer said, well, why don't you just have it go to 10 and be louder? It's because it goes, it goes to 11. And in all fairness, in high school, I did argue that the Fujita, or the, yeah, Fujita scale, almost said Fajita there, probably hungry. <laughs> yeah, um, w- that too. Did do some adjustment because the scales of the tornado and the severity of the damage they would cause were incremental, but then just capped off at five. But because of the tendency of tornadoes to be just whatever they want to be at the time, that anything higher than that wouldn't just be five plus. It could be increased at that point. So I'll, I'll give them that much. Yeah. I agreed with them when I was 17. Yeah, well, suffice it to say, uh, you know, that raised some interesting banter that went back and forth uh, on our uh, Twitter site. Uh, and uh, one of the questions that came up was just about the whole idea of prophecy in general. Is prophecy, and we're not talking about time travelers here, we're talking about uh, individuals uh, who claim to have the biblical gift of prophecy, is the gift of prophecy still for today? Now, the reason this is such a hot-button issue is there are those who will say, well, okay, if you have prophets like we have in the uh, Old Testament and even in the New Testament, um, wouldn't you have to have an open-ended Bible? Uh, would that uh, mean that these prophecies, because they came from God, have to be included in uh, divinely inspired Scripture? So, yeah, pretty lively debate gets going here. Uh, I guess to get to the, the nub of all this, is the gift of prophecy still for today? Well, let's define our terms. Uh, in the, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, And verse 3, we are told uh, that uh, the gift of prophecy was to be preferred in the church over the gift of speaking in tongues, uh, because a person who who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. In in other words, if you hear a balanced biblical message that includes edification, the, the word carries the idea of building upon a foundation. In other words, it increases your understanding and your knowledge of the facts of God's word. Exhortation takes those facts and answers the most challenging question any pastor will ever be asked uh, following a message, so what? what? What difference does this make? How does it apply to my life? Well, again, exhortation carries the idea of uh, someone coming alongside and actually coaching someone up in the ancient Olympic games. And so it's putting into practice those facts we learn from the Bible. And then comfort, uh, the word paramuthion there, is a word that literally means to whisper in one's ear. It's a picture of intimacy. It's the idea of encouraging people that uh, God's message to us isn't just try harder and and I'll get back to you later. Uh, We are given the comfort of knowing that the comforter, the Holy Spirit, is the one who will give us the power to be able to apply those truths that we've learned in the Word of God. So if you hear a message that is comforting, that is applicable, that is informative, the gift of prophecy has been functioning. And I don't know anyone. uh, There's a a school of thought called cessationism uh, that says that the gift of prophecy, especially along with the sign gifts of the Spirit, uh, passed away when either the last apostle died or the completed canon of Scripture 
uh, was delivered to us. The last uh, New Testament book was written. Which is the position used to avoid controversies like this one, that if people abuse spiritual gifts just to say, well, they're invalidated, not because we're examining their claim, but the claim itself is absurd because those gifts don't exist. Yeah. We would argue that's a step too far, but in the right direction. Yeah, well, here's where that, the, since the cessationist point of view runs into problems. They say, well, if you have uh, words of prophecy going on today, don't you need to have, in a sense, Acts chapter 29 or, you know, Third Thessalonians or, or things like this? Well, there's a problem with that. Uh, there were certain books of the Bible, certain uh, divinely inspired uh, words from God that were preserved and agreed upon on all hands uh, as being divinely inspired. We are also told within these divinely inspired books that there were also words from God, prophetic words, that didn't, in a sense, uh, constitute, say, uh, another book of the Bible, if you will. Uh, That there were prophetic words that were given at particular times to particular people in particular circumstances to guide them and direct them as far as God's will is concerned. In, for example. In Acts chapter 13, for instance, we are told that uh, when Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the elders there at Antioch were fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set aside Bar- Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have set aside for them. This would be an example of a personal prophecy, the Holy Spirit speaking this instruction that Paul and Barnabas were to take the gospel to regions beyond. Which, uh, again, our argument isn't that that verse isn't in the Bible, thus not closing the loop here, but giving a practical example of the Spirit speaking to direct individuals both in and outside of the timeline given to us by the physician Luke. Yeah. The point is, though, that spiritual gift has an example in Scripture that would have applied to nobody else apart from them at a particular place and particular time. Why then did they accept it as legitimate from God? Not because they'd be the only person to have that experience ever, but because they examined that word consistent with the word of God, what God had revealed on paper and heard audibly, that checks out. Right. That's the point. Right. And, uh, you know, again, we could go on to other examples. Uh, A fellow by the name of Agabus uh, was seen as a prophet in the early church and had some very specific prophecies about uh, the future that the Apostle Paul uh, would enter into uh, if he continued his journey to Jerusalem. On that journey uh, to Jerusalem, heading back towards Caesarea, we are told that uh, Philip, uh, the uh, individual that had originally shared with the Ethiopian official and had a great ministry in Samaria, had seven daughters who prophesied. Uh, But none of their prophecies are recorded for us. And note as well, uh, daughters are girls. Yeah. Girls can, you know, exercise spiritual gifts too, just yeah. to make sure we're clear on that. Yeah, but uh, but the interesting thing is, although they are uh, given uh, the thumbs up in Scripture as being prophetesses, if you will, not a single one of their prophecies is recorded. Why is that? Well, it's very possible that their prophecies were like Agabus's, they were to individuals to specific uh, about specific circumstances to guide them in terms of God's will. Does God still then do that today? Does God reserve the right to be able to do that today? Uh, there is no scripture that would indicate 
that the gift of prophecy uh, has ceased uh, in our day and age. Uh, the closest one uh, that those who take the cessationist uh, position, and I, I don't mean to straw men them at all, and if I'm not properly representing them, you know, please let me know. But uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians 13, we are told love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will be done away. Well, there you go. You know, the gifts like knowledge and prophecies and tongues are going to have a uh, restricted shelf life in the life of the church. Well, I'd like to think that the gift of knowledge is still alive and kicking in the church, but that's another issue. But notice when uh, this is going to happen. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, when when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. Okay, what is that which is perfect then? Uh, is it, uh, as the, the cessationist would say, uh, the completed canon of Scripture? Well, once again, in context in 1 Corinthians 13, Verse 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as also I am known. So clearly, that which is perfect is the completed work that God does within us when we see Jesus face to face. Which is in the text. If someone were to say this is about the canon, they'd had to put that from outside the text, which is not what we encourage in sound Bible teaching. Yeah. So, you know, what do we do then when an individual comes up to us in church, uh, has a glassy look in their eyes, and says in a vibrato voice, Sean, I have a word from the Lord for you. Well, in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, we get instructions about this. Do not quench the spirit. Uh, do not forbid... Uh, people to pro despise, prophecies. despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good. And most importantly, abstain from every form of evil. But right. We've delayed the point. So, you know, when we test all things, how do we test all things? Just because someone comes up to you and says, thus saith the Lord, uh, doesn't mean they're speaking for the Lord. You test it. How do you test it? Well, you test it according to the Holy Spirit-inspired words of God. Yeah. And uh, like a word of prophecy, uh, you know, it can be a word of edification. Someone can come up and say, you know, I really think this scripture applies to your situation. That would be edification. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, there could be someone who comes up and say, it says, well, you know, I think this scripture applies to your situation and here's how you apply it. Well, right. that's when you get into exhortation. And then someone can come up and say, boy, you know, I just think the Lord really wants to encourage you, like he stood before Paul and said, don't be afraid, continue to speak. Uh, when he was in Corinth, uh, someone might say, you know, the Lord just really wants to encourage you. If you're not, I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I will strengthen you, establish you, and, and keep you in the difficulties you're going through. Uh, you know, that this scripture applies to your life. So, you know, I think if we uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and obviously... You know, there's these time travelers that uh, claim to uh, Alleged time tell, tell people about the future. And, you know, you can put that to the test and see it flunks with a capital F. But there are also individuals who will say, oh, the Lord told me that this is going to happen this year. Uh, the date setters, if you will, regarding the rapture. Great oh, example yeah. of that sort of thing. Um, you know, whenever someone says, you know, someone had a vision uh, the Lord told them that something is going to happen during this time. Now, I do not categorically say, no, that can't happen. But I do think that people who say such things 
should be held to a standard of church discipline if they make a prophecy along this line and it doesn't come to pass. Because if you prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't come to pass, what does that make you? A false prophet. And uh, I think of all the things you never want to be called in Scripture, false prophets got to be right up there. Right so behind hireling. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, is the gift of prophecy still alive today? Uh, if you've heard a message that includes edification, exhortation, and comfort, yeah. Uh, do personal prophecies happen today? Uh, we see an example of it in the scripture. Uh, we In the book of Acts, we see it demonstrated, and we see the proper care and handling of that particular gift uh, described for us in no uncertain terms in passages like 1 Corinthians uh, 14 and uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So when we see that standard in place, uh, we don't want to despise prophecy. You know, we, we are told not to do that. It's like saying, do not forbid to speak in tongues, and, but and make word, sure it's done biblically. And the word despise, for those listening, means literally to put a lid on it. Just yeah. categorically, no. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we don't want to out-Bible the Bible just because we're uncomfortable with it, just because it's easier to manage. If people say that this died with the last apostle, someone starts in with, thus saith the Lord with the vibrato voice, you can just go, no, stop it. Um, uh, it's not that neat and clean, but if we have an open Bible and, uh, you know, when someone, and as a pastor, I get this on a semi-regular basis, someone will come up and say, you know, I think God has given me a message for you. Uh, I'll say, okay, uh, fire away. And I'll say, I'll take that under advisement. I'll pray about that. I'll search the scriptures. And, uh, if that person responds by saying, well, I already said, thus saith the Lord, and they start getting all hot and bothered because I don't immediately, just because they said it, believe it's from God, uh, that really uh, sets off the discernometer for me. But, uh, but again, um, test all things, hold fast which, that which is good. And if they do follow through and say, okay, yeah, examine it, and then you come back and say, I don't see where that is in Scripture, and they still get hot and bothered by it, still very yeah, You're dealing with a false prophet. So Speaking yeah. of instances that warrant church discipline. Uh, Talon wants to know, what does restoration from church discipline look like in action? Well, probably one of the greatest examples I think we can find of church discipline, <laughs> it's uh, most uh, undiluted form, is described for us, uh, Talon, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, there the Apostle Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such uh, sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Now remember who Paul is talking to here. He's talking to the church at Corinth. Um, Corinth kind of had a bad reputation, didn't it? Yeah, in the ancient world, literally they came up with a word to describe somebody who was just flat out, totally given over to their lack of inhibitions, and that was to Corinthianize. The reason for that is because, like in the United States, we say what happens in Vegas stays in right. Vegas, and the association of prostitutes and gambling and all other sorts of debauchery and poor decision-making. In Greece, it was Corinth. They had a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, or in the Roman culture, Venus, and of course, the prostitutes who work that channel. Basically a thousand of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a port city, so obviously a lot of willing and able customers but the point of emphasis of Corinthian culture was the sort of people who said anything goes. And they looked at what was happening in the church and said, that's a little... That's over the top. Yeah. 
What was it? It says that a man has his father's wife. So there you go. You know, I mean, some people try to soft pedal this, but I think it's pretty clear what was <laughs> oh, going it was on. Stepmom, yeah, yeah. so much better. Yeah, and you are puffed up. Uh, Paul writes, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For in, I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." In other words, uh, Paul is saying, you guys haven't dealt with this. Well, what does it mean to deal with it? Well, dealing with this situation would go to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, where Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately. If he hears you, you've won your brother. If he will not listen, take two or three with you so that everything might be established by two or three witnesses. If he will not listen to you them, you take it to the church. You will not listen to the church. Jesus said, let him be to you like a tax gatherer, or tax gatherer or a, a Gentile. In other words, uh, you, you don't have anything to do with them at that point. But notice there's a process that's involved there. Mm -hmm. First is individual and private. Secondly, the, the uh, next step involves witnesses, not necessarily what the transaction is, but how the person responds to the correction. Uh, is also very possible there. And then finally, if they don't listen to that, you take it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, you put them out of the fellowship. Now, this is what Paul is referring to when he talks about being turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, because it, it seems very uh, interesting here, but there is a spiritual protection that we have when we are part of the body of Christ. Uh, when we talk about the shield of faith, the, the word shield there refers to the kind of shields that would make up the famous Roman phalanx position or even the, uh, the uh, turtle maneuver where you would have uh, Roman soldiers who would hold up, uh, say if they're on the edges, their shields on one side, those in the middle would hold their shields up above and uh, you could literally move like an ancient tank that way. Well, in the same way, when we're in the body of Christ and we have the shield of faith described in the book of Ephesians chapter six, uh, we protect each other. Uh, we're told that the shield of faith uh, can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And like they say in warfare, uh, it's the one you don't hear coming that always gets you. But somebody else around can keep you in place. If you're outside that phalanx, uh, you're in a very vulnerable position for sure. And that's uh, what's being described here. Notice that uh, he was given over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, you know, again, uh, Talon, I don't know what it means to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh and all that entails. Maybe it's something like Job went through, very possible. But I don't want to find out, see? But whatever this strong medicine was, uh, apparently it worked. Uh, because uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we are told in verse 5, uh, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, if you forgive anything, 
I also forgive. For if indeed I've forgiven anything, I've forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. So what Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to do is to restore this guy. Uh, you know, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they are completely slow on the uptake because they're saying, oh, we're so gracious and we're so tolerant and all of this. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Well, apparently they got the message and they almost went too far. When this guy encountered the consequences of his sin, he turns back to the Lord. He wants to repent. And it seems like the Corinthian church is going, no way, Jose, uh, you've uh, damaged our reputation enough. I'm just more concerned about what people think of me and my reputation than I am in real reconciliation. So, you know, what Paul says is, no, reaffirm your love for him. Bring him back into the body. And, uh, you know, again, Talon, some people will say, well, you know, how often do you do that? Well, once again, we go back to Jesus' words. Uh, when Peter asked him, if my brother sins against me and asks me to forgive him, how often do I forgive him? Up to seven times? Well, the average Jewish person felt that three times was more than sufficient for something like that, and then you don't have anything else to do with them. Uh, so Peter doubled that and put one on the top just to show how spiritual he was. And Jesus' response was, uh, I tell you, don't forgive him seven times, but 70 times seven, literally an innumerable amount. So as often as a person sincerely turns and asks for forgiveness, hey, they might stumble and fall the very next day, but if they stumble and fall the very next day, you deal with it scripturally. You don't just say, well, you're a lost cause. So the idea is that we should always, always, always tail and have as our number one priority in any kind of church discipline situation, uh, restoration as our number one priority. Uh, Galatians chapter six and verse one says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Uh, maybe the best rule of thumb in all of this uh, would be to say, if uh, you find somebody who stumbled and, and uh, maybe has even hurt you, uh, restore them in the same way you'd want to be restored if the shoe was on the other foot. Right. And as another note, uh, say, for example, when people in the church are seeing this person back, the reputation and obviously circumstances of their removal from the fellowship has made it kind of awkward to be in public and it's an uncomfortable transition for him. There's two things that I think also need to be encouraged, pastor speaking to pastors, is first of all, if there's people that are making life hard for him or bringing up things that have been dealt with, it would be on us and you if you're going into a fellowship that isn't quick on the upkeep for these sort of things right to get in people's faces and say hey we've dealt with that if you know something more than what's already been addressed right. understand oh, yeah. scripturally yeah. this is where he's at don't seek to condemn one who's already been judged and restored that would be our job in the midst don't add sorrow to their sorrow which yeah. is the point that he was yeah. making and then yeah. likewise as well on the part of the congregants to not make life harder, not be the person that has to have their face gotten into by the leadership, to say, okay, understanding the difference between where they were and where they are. If the behavior repeats itself, then we don't go to step five, we go back to step one. We right. address them personally, we add witnesses. This process starts over because God doesn't have us on a parole list and neither should we treat each other like that's the case. Yeah. Goal's yeah. always restoration. Yeah, yeah, you don't go to DEFCON one 
at the first sign of trouble. <laughs> so. Even if they have a reputation. Now, if it's a criminal activity, that's another issue. But understand that in context of church discipline, you know, we've maybe this is more of a mark against my reputation, I don't know, but heard of individuals who've uh, performed the angel or mercy style of serial killing, where they work as a nurse or some sort of medical practitioner, put patients to death as, uh, you know, some mm-hmm. self, uh, I guess, imposed sense of righteousness or something. I'm putting them out of their pain, but it's murder. They confess it to the church, and the church doesn't report it to the government. That's a no-no. The church is required to report that to the law. Right. But if they are then paroled, they get out, they come back to the church. If they then confess again, hey, I got back into my old lifestyle, you still need to report that to the police. Right. That's a point as we need to make as well. But if they're in a situation where they got into an argument with somebody, they were engaged in some sort of lifestyle, that needs to be understood socially yeah. among the community, yeah. the body of Christ, the believers, they need to be treated with the kind of restoration we've been given, and it's the pastor's job to make sure that the sheep aren't biting, I guess is the phrase. Yeah, and uh, you, you bring up a really uh, important point there as well. You know, one of the things that was kind of an eye-opener to me when I first got involved with uh, youth ministry was uh, the uh, senior pastor of the church I served at in Agora Hills, California, sat me down and said, now, you need to understand that uh, if someone in your group, say, reports some kind of, uh, you know, say, uh, uh, sexual assault or molestation mm-hmm. is going on, and they come to you and they tell you this, you need to tell them that you do not have any choice but to inform the police about this, uh, that, that it, it is not even an option for you. And, and the thing that you bring up there that I think is so important is sometimes churches have used this idea of church discipline to sweep some pretty serious criminal uh, activity under the rug because they don't want it to look bad. Some denominations have even come under uh, some some very uh, difficult and I think uh, well-earned condemnation for doing exactly that. We're not just talking about the Catholic priest scandals. We're mentioning Baptist groups that sure. have covered up for murder, people who have been put in these situations because they weren't wise in how they were not only to handle the law, but had a missense of priorities and saying the reputation of the community will somehow tarnish the name of Christ. No, you honor the name of Christ by standing for the truth in all situations. Right, right. So, yeah, church discipline, you know, in moral and spiritual issues is is our our first uh, recourse. But if we find that someone has crossed the line and has actually broken the law, then we uh, have no uh, latitude to be able to say, no, 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 we'll handle this in-house. We have to obey the laws of the land. And it goes without saying, but unfortunately these days TikTok makes it so that we can't assume these things. If the government passes a law that says you can't harbor Jews and you're hiding them in your fellowship, we can disobey the law. We'll deal with that differently. But yeah. the point being made is church discipline is on communal issues. If criminal offenses take place, we talk about this as staff. We encourage you all to remind your local fellowships and make sure of that. That's different. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, I think that's a really good distinction you pointed out there, Sean. Communal, <laughs> that is the community, the, the body of Christ, that's one thing. But as soon as things get criminal, that's another issue entirely. Yeah, we're not a separate government. 
Um, Dan wants to know, who was Aleister Crowley, and was he really a cult leader? Uh, not only was he really a cult leader, he was a really, really culty leader. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Aleister Crowley was basically Gerald Gardner 2.0. Uh, Gerald Gardner, for those of you who don't know, wrote the Book of Shadows. He's the primary source on modern-day Wicca, although there are other forms of it out and about today. And when we're talking about the occult, that's generally what people are affiliating it with. Um, his version of the occult is called Thelema, which is a conglomeration and mismatch of anything from Kabbalic Jewish mysticism to Egyptian and Norse and even Greek paganism. Um, he claimed to have gotten this dictated to him through his guardian angel, which I don't already <laughs> consider reliable. We can go to Second Corinthians verse, or chapter 12 in a moment. But when you're hearing about people who are saying, oh, you know, the, the book of the law, that's not a reference to the authorship of Moses. That's a reference to his work. And if you want another title to spot it, clarify. Do you mean the Liber Al or Al? That's his work. Uh, when it comes to the idea of people being cults or founding other than sound doctrine, teaching heresy, as the term is oftentimes reported, it isn't because we don't like it. It's because one of these two is not true, and one of them happens to be the Bible. Because if you're right, the Bible's not right, and we have more reason to trust the Bible than you. Aleister Crowley, of course, performed no miracles to verify his claims apart from just making it cultivating for drugs. Al um, Gerald Gardner did the same thing. It was just a glorified attempt to justify child molestation, and he claimed that it was a revivication of ancient Druidism. The problem is Julius Caesar wiped them all out before the time of Christ, so I don't know where he was getting his written sources. Point being made, though, is this. If we're going to identify a cult, you can go into all the ins and outs of him uh, promoting basically the read, uh, do, uh, take of your fill and will of love as ye will, where, when, and whom with you as you will. That's in Liber Al. Uh, it's basically a new rendition of, you know, do no harm, but do what ye will. The problem is, if I will to do harm, then there's no real animus against that point being made is yeah. this though <laughs> we're talking about someone who like anyone else and everyone else can claim in their own mind to speculate about the supernatural the reason why we hold up the bible in a higher regard is because we believe it's not speculation but revelation that god reached down to us and then you would probably reply but doesn't uh, he just bear the same credentials? Doesn't he just say that a supernatural entity, his angel, came down and spoke these things to him? Well, just like we talked about with hearing words of prophecy, I think even an atheist would acknowledge that's a fair standard. If you claim to have a set core of beliefs and you test that accordingly, then you have at least uh, something to work with as far as justifiable confirmation or dismissing. But here's the point. When someone claims the same credentials, like we talked about with prophets of God, if God is speaking, it is reasonable to assume he'd put his words and deeds on the same level of reliability. That's why in the Bible you see the series of miracles being performed, not happening consistently throughout history, but in fits and spurts. Why? Because new revelation was coming, and thus new reason to trust what was being revealed. So for example, why is it that Moses performed so many miracles, but the time of the judges 
only occasionally saw every couple generations something unusual happening, like for instance, Samson's strength. Well, the reason for that is because no new information was being given. They wrote down these specific individuals because God was doing something here. Right. That's not normal to carry right. a city gate on your shoulders, yeah. despite the fact how long your dreads are. I, yeah. I don't know about bodybuilders, but I don't think they look at follicle health as a mark to qualify. The point being made, though, is this. Let me know if you get it. Yeah. point being made, though, is this. When we're talking to or about things pertaining to God. If someone comes to you with a prophecy, it's either going to back up on the authority of God's word, or it's going to stand alongside of it. And why do we hold these books, these 66 books, 40 different authors, written over 1,500 years of history, three different languages, two of which aren't even spoken today, why do we hold that in authority over the Liber Al or the Book of Shadows or name your sacred text? Because if you were to claim to be a prophet of God, which to a part, Aleister Crowley claimed to be revealing things about the supernatural, does he match up to the material that he picked and borrowed from? Well, first of all, if, and according to the Old Testament, when a prophet was to speak in the name of God, according to Deuteronomy 17, he had to match four criteria. First, he had to be accountable to get his facts straight. Right. That if he was going to speak on behalf of a divine being, he'd have to at least get those inform that information correct. Because God knows what's happening. Now, when you say, but doesn't the Bible deny evolution, thus it's false, once again, that is not a factual statement. It's two presuppositions about metaphysics. One can't be proved over the other. If you assume no God, you have to put something in there. But if you do assume there's a God, it's completely reasonable to believe what? That he could do what he wants when he wants to right. in his nature. Right. So to say that, oh, well, the Bible's in conflict with science. See, it fails its own standard. No, he fails to fit your standard. You're deciding what the Bible's an authority over. You're deciding what are facts and aren't. When the Bible's putting information forward, what we can verify, and historians and archaeologists can prove this, when we try to examine the claims about people, places, and things in the Bible, we haven't found anything to conflict with it. If anything, it's been used to confirm it. Right. That's why it's still being used as a source today. So that's what we mean by inerrant. When we're talking then about the second standard, it would not only be important to get their facts straight, but their facts consistent. Moses obviously put on quite a show to show his credentials, but when people would speak after Moses, they would at least have to line up with what was already revealed, what's right. been already verified. Right. If I say I have a new revelation, like Aleister Crowley, and he says, well, you know, astrology and uh, sacrificial altars, pentagrams, sun worship, all that kind of jazz, that's in conflict with what Moses said, not putting up sacred pillars or altars, not to learn the way of the pagans, right. not to sacrifice people, those kinds of yeah. issues. Yeah. But Especially that last one. Yeah, yeah. just saying. Yeah. Yeah. And you say, well, what about Genesis 22? God stopped it, Nimrod. That's the point. So when we're talking about that as the second standard, consistency is also king. If you were in conflict with what was already revealed, you'd be labeled a false prophet, like we talked about earlier. The third standard is accountability. If someone were to claim to speak in the name of God to the nation that had it in their law, Deuteronomy 17 included, if this person predicts something that doesn't come to pass, take him out and kill him with rocks. He hasn't spoken in the name of God. Don't be afraid of him. Put away the evil from you. I believe this is also in Deuteronomy 13. Yeah. But when we're then asking the question, okay, accuracy, consistency, accountability, Where's God, though, in all of this? Couldn't I just write a math book and say that it's from God? 
Well, no, because the fourth standard is what also Moses laid down. Not just accuracy, not just consistency, not just accountability under a capital punishment, kind of a deterrent. Yeah. They also had to perform public miracles. This could include predictions of the future. That came true. Yeah. Or nature yeah. miracles like we see with Elijah, with Moses, with Jesus. That's why we trust these words over his, because Alistair and others before and after him didn't put those credentials forward. Christians in particular, and Hebrews to a point, have more reason to trust their sacred text than that of anyone else who would claim at least to be on par with the Bible. So the reasons why we trust something, the informed reasons to have this hope within us, are based on those facts, that when these books were put in the Bible, the Hebrews themselves who were compiling it said, this matches up to Moses' standard. Now, the apostles also were held to that standard. They were speaking to an audience that would hold them accountable and oftentimes did, but not under just pretenses. They were consistent with the Old Testament prophets. That's why the majority of the New Testament is just quoting the Old. Right. They did perform public miracles in the name of Jesus, hint, hint. And of course, when they presented their facts, uh, people like uh, William Ramsey said that this guy really knew their history. Yeah. <laughs> it was enough to convert him. So those are the points that we're making as far as why we believe he's a cult. Now, we have a quick acrostic as far as things to spot that claim to be alongside or even among Christian levels of reliability on the supernatural. A little acrostic we put together, C-U-L-T, right. matches it up. Real quick, what is that? Well, we have a five. Yeah, what do they say about Christ? First of all, that's the C in the acrostic. Is Jesus who he revealed himself to be in Scripture? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he's revealed him. That Jesus is God in human flesh. That he was virgin born, that he lived a sinless life, that he laid that life down on a cruel Roman cross and rose from the dead three days later. What is their understanding of Christ? Is he uh, Satan's spirit brother? Is he just an angel? Uh, is he just an enlightened human being? Uh, that's one of the first things that we'll tell you. The U in our acrostic stands for what is their understanding of Scripture? In other words, do they have uh, a reliance upon the Bible as their source of truth, or do they say, well, we think the Bible contains truth, but uh, it also has error, so we'll tell you which is which, or uh, you can only understand the Bible if you understand the Bible and our revelation that has been given to us by our leaders. What is their understanding of Scripture? The L in the acrostic stands for legalism. Uh, do they believe that we are saved by grace through faith? that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, or is it Jesus plus your good works, Jesus plus church membership, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus uh, sharing your faith, Jesus plus uh, some kind of meritorious deeds. Uh, if uh, they add to the finished work of Jesus, remember Jesus' last words on the cross, it is finished. If they say, no, 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 to be continued, you've got to do your own good works too in order to be saved, uh, then you're dealing with a cult. Uh, the T in the acrostic stands for trust. Who do they tell you to trust? Do they tell you to put your trust in God and in his word, or do they say put your trust in us, put your trust in our leader, put your, tr our, your trust in our 
equally inspired documents. Uh, we'll have the relationship with God, and uh, we'll let you know exactly what you need to do. You need to trust in us. Uh, I went to a conference once. A, a Christian speaker named uh, Jeffrey Van Vonderen said, the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet, pretty easy to spot. Uh, a true prophet will point only upwards towards God. A false prophet will point at themselves. So C-U-L-T, keep that in mind. Great way to discover before you get knee deep if the group you're attending is legit or not. And in the case of Aleister Crowley, did he affirm Christ or did he affirm other gods besides him when Jesus claimed the same authority as being the only God I know not one? He claimed there were other gods apart from God. Yeah, and the ultimate fork in the road is uh, his uh, work is uh, the theelma. Uh, that literally means the will. Uh, that the only way to find enlightenment is to pursue your will in this life. And lost and confused people are people who have lost their own pursuit of their own will. Well, that runs completely contrary to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who prayed not once, not twice, but three times, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So that's the fork in the road right there. Do you believe Jesus uh, that we should pursue the will of the Father? Or do you believe Aleister Crowley, who says live to stimulate your nerve endings and doesn't matter who you trample on, go for it. So. Uh, real quick, uh, Yari gave a series of questions from his uncle. Uh, we'll deal with those in 15 seconds. Did Constantine <laughs> write the Bible? No, read the Rudder of Ecumenical Councils. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon. Were scribes illiterate? No, that's how you became a scribe. Do we have the correct version of the Bible? According to even atheists like Bart Ehrman, more reason to trust the main core tenets of Christian doctrine than any other document in ancient history. All the other quote-unquote errors and renditions are word orders and spelling. Did King James edit the Bible due to the Buggery Act? Is the Bible meant to be taken literally? It's a piece of literature. What else do you do with it? Thank yeah. you for being here. Thank you all for sending in your questions. We look forward to being, or not to dealing, but being with you all again tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. We'll see you guys all again next time. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.